0: And welcome to Good Job Podcast with me, Simon Harris. And this is episode three. This week's guest is Sophie Livingston. Sophie is the CEO of a wonderful charity called Little Village. And me and Sophie talk about Little Village quite a lot. So I'll let her uh, sort of describe what Little Village do um, later on. Sophie's really engaging, a passionate individual, and I really enjoyed talking to her. Uh, We talked about changing the world, the impact of having children on both men and women, and how to get money from rich people, which is kind of what she does. Sophie strikes me as a really driven person whose enthusiasm is is just infectious. And after I finished chatting to her, I just wanted to rush out and change the world. But uh, unfortunately, I had to edit this podcast, so I had to put that changing the world on on the back burner a little bit but hey ho at least you have something to listen to eh? Also big shout out to the guys at Pacific 7 Productions who let me use their beautiful edit suite to record this episode. Uh, Okay I'll return at the end for a bit of a sum up and more on how you can get involved with Little Village but without further ado here we go with episode three. Okay, Sophie Livingston, welcome to the Good Job Podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, So could you just explain to us in your own words uh, what it is you do, uh, how you got into doing what you do and, you know, how you started and and where you're at now?
1: Oh, crikey. Um, So at the moment, I am the chief exec of Little Village and Little Village is a London-based network of baby banks. So, um... If you think about food banks, we are like that, but for baby kit and clothing. So we take donations from families of high quality, pre-loved baby clothes, baby kits like high chairs, cots, buggies, etc., and then we have. Loads of amazing volunteers who sort and check those items. Um, and then they are passed on to families who get to referred to us by a network of professionals. So health visitors, midwives, social workers, other charities who send families to us who they know really need the support. Um, and that last year in 2022, we supported 7000 children under five. Wow, really? Um, yeah, Um, and hopefully we're hoping this year that it will go up to about 9,000, but it still feels like a drop in the ocean compared to the need that is out there, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? And that's, and that's in the London Sort of within the m25 so.
1: yes so it's it's most London boroughs that we will support and there are other baby banks in London as well so um, we're not the sole provision in London and there are about 250 baby banks across the country actually that have sprung up in the last 10 years which is depressing um, but I think what's what's less depressing and what's heartening is both the, the fact that people are taking this into their own hands and there are amazing, mostly women, social entrepreneurs setting these um, initiatives up, up and down the country in their community because they're responding to a need. But also, you know, if child poverty was eradicated tomorrow, there's still a role for baby banks in terms of sharing... Kit and creating a network around families because when you have a baby, is it's such an isolating time in the early years. You haven't got the school network. Um, unfortunately, things like Sure start and um, toddler groups and stuff have been absolutely decimated in the last um, ten years. So it's a really, really isolating time. So there's a real there's something bigger in what baby banks do around community and sharing and. Treading lightly on our planet, that is bigger than just the what's sadly a humanitarian response at the moment.
0: And why do you think you say that it's increased? The demand has increased. Um, Why do you think that is?
1: Well, COVID obviously, and now the cost of living crisis. So austerity is where it started. I mean, there was still people were living in poverty, and poverty, sadly, child poverty has been growing and deepening for the first time in a generation. Prior to COVID. And then COVID has made it worse and now the cost of living crisis has made it even worse. And we're arguably in a national catastrophe, but because the way we have, well, the way poverty is portrayed in this country is very individualised. So people get individually blamed for their situation where, where actually it's a systemic problem. It's a systemic problem and a choice we make as a society that we don't give enough people people, enough money to live off on benefits for example that means they're struggling and they can't there's no safety net so if their fridge breaks their washing machine breaks the buggy breaks they have to get into debt to fix that and then you're in a really difficult spiral there's nowhere to nowhere to way to catch them and i think that's a shocking indictment of our society really but that's that's where we are now
0: yeah i mean it's it's uh it's a real shame, isn't it? And I'm just trying to imagine why that might, you know, why people, uh, I guess, for somebody like me, who's had a nice upbringing and I've got the safety net that you're talking about, if the buggy broke, I suppose I could call my mum and my dad um, or even, I mean, to be honest, we got sort of handed down more, more stuff than we needed, really. Um, and that's interesting because what you're doing is is actually making use of those people that actually have too much, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, yeah. because there yeah. is too much stuff. There
1: is too much stuff, for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, there is too much stuff. And we're trying to create those hand-me-down networks that you you can you automatically get if you're part of a community that if you're isolated if you've just come here from another country or you've fled domestic abuse you're having to start again or um you know any number of situations or you know you you're you have a mum and dad who are around but they haven't got any money either so they're not they can't be a safety net because they haven't got any money um we need to provide that around families who don't have that safety net. And that's a really beautiful thing, actually, that people want to come together and do that.
0: Yeah. Because I mean, you know, having at the time in your life, when you're having kids, like you said, you're having a baby, you're, you're isolated, but you're also pretty vulnerable, aren't you? You know, I mean, even having just had a A kid ourselves you do feel that um because you you and you you tipped her around and 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 your senses are heightened uh because you you start caring for another another thing and and if you're already in a vulnerable situation that must just be you know heightened massively
1: absolutely i mean i think the the mental health impact of all of all of those other stresses that families uh, that come to Little Village are experiencing are huge on, you know, I found having my first baby was the most lonely time I'd ever experienced. And I have resources. I could go to to a cafe and eat a lot of cake and I did, <laughs> um, but I was still, um, you know, I still found it really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, and you just think, well, you know, if you can't afford to go out, if you're stuck in one room that's full of mould um, with, um potentially some quite scary people down the corridor. Um, If you're worried about your baby's health, but you don't speak English and you can't advocate for yourself properly with the NHS, where you really now have to fight because they're so under-resourced. All of those, I mean, the stress of all of that is just overwhelming for people. So I think a big part of what we do is provide that solidarity for families it's it's not just about the stuff it's the way we do it it's the fact that somebody I mean this is what families tell us it's not me projecting it it's what families say is it's the way you supported us that you didn't judge us and that you were there for me and you had my back at a time when I felt really on my own um and that it's that community that um is a a potential sort of wrapping its arms around families at a time when they're really vulnerable means so much to families. And you can understand why, even if it's just one interaction of them coming into one of our shop spaces to get some stuff and they're treated with dignity and made a cup of tea and somebody listens to them, that can mean a huge amount at a time when you don't have an adult conversation. You're having to fight with every adult you speak to for Access to resource or money, um, or to be believed that your situation is
0: difficult. So you're not just going, oh, here's a load of stuff, you know, going sort, you know, because that's kind of a big part, an important part, but actually, yeah. that's just part of what isn't is is the best way to. To, to react to the, this this horrible situation or, or the horrible situation that these people are in?
1: Yeah, the stuff is a bit of a catalyst, I think. I mean, obviously, it's really important. People yeah. need the yeah. buggy and yeah, the, the items, but it's it's the way you provide it. You're not just giving stuff people some unwanted manky stuff in a bin bag. You're beautifully packaging it like it's a gift. We check everything so anything with stains or rips um, comes out. So... Families also say I didn't, you know, I was nervous about secondhand, but actually you couldn't really tell that most of the stuff I got was secondhand. Yeah. So that's really important to us that people feel like they're getting a high quality gift given with love. Right. Um, but then it's also a catalyst to another conversation. So the thing we've done the last year is create a signposting guidance service, um, thanks to the, the mayor of London, um, which is great. So they gave us funding to do it. And... Um,
0: What what does that mean? So
1: that means that when we meet a family, we can begin a conversation with them about what has led them to our door and what else they might need support with. Um, And that could be housing, it could be referral to a food bank. I think we referred about, it's the equivalent of about 30 grand's worth of food bank um vouchers if you like in the last year Mm -hmm. um it's hope hopefully it's helping a family to get through that process
0: of course yeah Um, what are the sort of situations that these presumably mainly women mums are are in that, that that come to you i mean is it just women
1: well no we've increasingly dads and um but of course, yeah, the majority, the majority of mums coming to us, I've got to try and remember the numbers, but it's about 12% are fleeing domestic abuse, yeah. about a quarter are refugees or seeking asylum, lots in initial accommodation or temporary accommodation. Um, and then there's quite a lot who are just can't make ends meet. So just thinking of a, a couple who both worked in the NHS, had a baby unexpectedly, just couldn't afford to make that work um, and we had somebody else recently actually who um, is is a um, a nurse on statutory maternity pay can't make it work needed to come and seek our support i mean that's that's what i mean by austerity and the cost of living crisis people who are work does not pay anymore and people cannot make it work make things stack up um and it's it's just really depressing and really scary that you know people can't afford to provide the basics for their family um and what to, what does that say about us as a society that we're doing that to people and putting them under that stress
0: and pe- these are people that are living you know sometimes literally next door to us yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we- it's
1: and that's what's so um difficult about it is that it's so hidden it's behind closed doors like you say it's literally all around us but you can't see it mm-hmm. um and it um and it's been so individualized so it's very much you know there's been this narrative for many years about um blaming people who are in poverty so that shame and that stigma is very much there and of course that again creates a mental health challenge for people experiencing it because they have absorbed those media messages as well they feel like oh what have i done wrong how am i struggling how am i not able to make this where's that
0: rhetoric coming from It, it, it you know this you know you need to get yourself out of this you know who's who's saying this sort of stuff is it the mainstream right ring wing online media.
1: It's yeah. I mean, I would and try not to be too political, but yeah. I mean, I think there's been a narrative mostly on the right for a long time about, you know, you know, from Norman Tebbit, get on your bike type right. thing, and Peter Lilly being anti-single parents, and, you know, that that's been around for a long time. Mm. Um and it's, you know, it's insidious. It's seeped into our media and then it seeps into consciousness.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think it's important to, to, to try and find out the root of these things because they end up being in your consciousness or, yeah. or mine anyway, sometimes without even realising it. Yeah. Um, and you jump to a conclusion, you know, at, at, without kind of thinking through, I don't know, how somebody might've got into that situation or what their backstory might be. Um, how, how do you go about uh, training or choosing the right people to to, to do that?
1: I think we, we always start with our values, um, which are love, thriving, solidarity and sustainability. And I think that uh, the love and solidarity are really relevant in terms of a family seeking support from us, um, because even though... You know, people are coming in a difficult situation. They may be angry and we have to meet that with love and understanding. Um, and that if you use solidarity as the frame with which you're supporting someone, it's you're standing alongside them to help them. Um, and... Also again, the stuff is quite a helpful catalyst. So you're not prying into their life for a particular for any reason other than to say, okay, so right. how big's the space you're in? Sure. Um would a cot fit or do you need something, yeah. you know, is a Moses basket appropriate, what you need? And then also you've said you want a buggy, but where do you live? Is there a lift? How, If you're having a newborn and there isn't a lift, maybe you should have a sling until they get to six months and then they can have a lightweight buggy to carry upstairs. Sure, it's yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of conversation. And through that, you start to understand the
0: circumstances. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, it's, it's... Cause again having just had a, a, a we've got a, a toddler she's a toddler now but those conversations you've you know we've already had with our friends and and and, and siblings who've also, who've just had their kids and they give you all this they give you too much information you know <laughs> and, and it's yeah. like you don't oh you don't want that you want that and your mum and your aunties you know they're giving you all this information as well as like handing down all the stuff yeah um and I just can't imagine actually what it would have been like if we had nobody at all and we just had this baby that we didn't you don't know the only real way that i would have known how to what to do is 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 through films and television i think Mm. um so to have actual people saying things like oh do you have a lift or not i don't think i would have thought of something like that yeah and have. also,
1: like his muslins, you're going to need them. Yeah, um, totally. Which, Why? You know,
0: before, it, yeah, exactly it speeds up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but would you mind just sort of uh, going through kind of how you, where you started, maybe maybe what you what your studies were, and 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 how you've what how you've got to where you are now? Because I think it, people would be really interested, um, you know, to see because because I I feel like. It's not on the list of like, when when kids, you say, well, what do you want to do? They want to be astronaut or a doctor, you know, or whatever. But um, charity CEO isn't, is not <laughs> it's always, not, not always there. <laughs> but it's possibly just as important um, as, as as all the other, um, you know, big, big jobs. I just wondered how, how you kind of get to where you are.
1: Um, yeah, sure. Um, I suppose that the very short answer is, working in charity and particularly small charities, you tend to just keep taking on bits and bobs as you go through different roles. And that's how I've grown the experience to be where I am at now. But the longer answer is, um, I have always very cheesily have always wanted to change the world. Um, I, you know, I was a child of the eighties. I grew up during, Apartheid. I moved from South Wales to the home counties when I was a teenager, and just seeing that difference in opportunity and access to opportunities between those locations um, sat uncom- really uncomfortably with me as well. Um, and I just, yeah, I've just, I don't really know where it comes from, other, other than I've just felt this anger about injustice um, from a young age. And I initially thought politics was the way to make that change or the way that I wanted to make that change. I still think politics changes the world and we can see that day in, day out for good and bad. But um, that was what I wanted to do. So I I went to university in Bristol. I studied history. Frankly, I'm not sure it qualified me for very much other than being able to cram and write an essay. But it enabled me to get involved in student politics, in um, labour students. And I was at university... during 1997 so I was campaigning um around the southwest with labor students as part of that um yeah. of the general election which was obviously That's a really exciting time in, yeah exactly education
0: education education exactly
1: um and it was a really exciting time it was you know an yeah. amazing experience to it's learn it's the first time I, I remember
0: uh, you know like any, anything I think I must have been nine or ten and it's the first time I remember it politics being a thing and my dad was like oh yeah tony player plays guitar and i was like cool you know what a nine ten year old like
1: it's amazing what sticks in your mind yeah because before yeah. that
0: was john major yeah and he, you can't imagine playing who played cricket yes <laughs> so that's my that was my my understanding yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you were campaigning with with students.
1: Yeah with labour students and um and then I so I was working in Sainsbury's two days a week um while I was a student and um which in itself was interesting there's quite a diverse student population in Bristol it's very privileged um students who were in my halls of residence but would come through my till and not acknowledge me so it was that was quite interesting again another sort of bit of fuel to the fire about um injustice and access to opportunities um and then uh after 97, the local MP changed um, from being uh, Bristol West, from being William Waltergrave who's a Tory, to Valerie Davey, who is who was newly elected as a Labour MP. Right. And I, can t- I taught myself to touch type as a teenager on just like a basic Apple Mac program. And because I can touch type, she... Basically, gave me a job typing up their correspondence oh, okay. two days a week, so I could quit Sainsbury's and work in her office, right. which was amazing. So I did like two a days job. a proper, yeah. I mean, I was only typing the correspondence, and uh-huh. but I was like opening the letters, helping with setting up their office, that sort of stuff. And yeah. you know what a privilege that was to do that. Um, as a student, it meant that when I graduated, it looked like I'd already had a graduate job. Um, yeah. So it was it was amazing. Um, and then when I did graduate and moved to London, which had always been my plan, I'd always had this, I still get it, excitement at coming back to London. I don't know what it is, but I just love it. Yeah. Um, and um, I worked for a lobbying firm to begin with because I couldn't afford to, at that time, people didn't pay interns. Um, and if I'd wanted to go and work for an MP in parliament, I probably would have had to have done it unpaid. And I didn't have the resources or the family support to do that. So I um, worked in a lobbying firm and then um, worked at ITV for a little bit doing corporate affairs, sort of public affairs-y type stuff, and then moved into the charity sector, which had always been my plan really to use that experience of um, how, you know, supporting businesses to think about how parliament was working, government was working in their favour or not, to then, for then... Um, the purposes of charity so I then went to work for a charity called Groundwork which is a national federation of um, trusts who work on environmental regeneration so using the advice it's it's interesting stuff as a catalyst conversation about Little Village because actually what they do is use the environment as a catalyst to engage communities so on a housing estate an unused piece of land they consult the community on what they want there and work with them on transforming it and yes you've transformed that space but it's but through the process you've engaged the community and they then own that space and will look after it and they it's not been done to them it's been done alongside them
0: yeah and they presumably they've kind of met each other a bit exactly. more in the process and exactly been, been more of a co- cohesive um community
1: exactly so um And then from there, I went to work at the Foyer Federation, which works with um, homeless young people. Um, And I was doing policy and communications there. Um, And then I expanded that a little bit there by adding on some corporate partnerships and things like a bit of fundraising. Um, But the thing that was really exciting there was the direct work with young people. So we did quite a lot of campaigning um, to raise the the voice in the situation that young people in. in, um, So a typical story was I was kicked out of home at 16 by my mom's new partner. Um, I've had to move into this. Uh, accommodation, um, and I'm now stuck with um, benefits that a benefits situation that means that it's limiting my ability to go to college, which is a bit
0: of a perverse situation. What because if you if you take the benefits which you need, you're not uh, you are not allowed to take them if you go to college.
1: Yes, uh, and now I can't remember the full detail. It's something called the sixteen hour rule, which I think still exists around you can't um study or work for more than 16 hours a week and and still claim housing benefit.
0: Right, but well, because the the you're because you're studying and that's already being what I guess paid for, then the idea is that they they don't want to pay for everything else as well. Yeah,
1: I think so. And uh, but it just was a per- particular perverse incentive for young people who were not in their family home. Yeah. and trying to um you know keep going with their education or get a second chance in their education. Yeah. And we did quite a big campaign. We were one of the we were the first charity, I think, to take out adverts in Westminster tube station. Loads of them do it now. It's a massive thing. Yeah. But we took out these really small little adverts up the steps as you go out of Westminster tube station that had the quotes from young people on them. So we were literally putting their voices in Westminster. And that was a real and then brought some of the young people down to see the posters. And wow. It okay. was really Yeah, it was a really lovely, empowering thing to do. Yeah. Um, And actually on my final day there, Gordon Brown, who was then the chancellor, made a speech saying, we must end the 16-hour rule. I think it was his speech to the CBI or something. Yeah. Um, And um, that was was a nice way to end my time there. Um, So I learned an awful lot there about how you involve people, the power of voice, the power of putting the experiences and voices of people... Who are going through something at the centre of a campaign, yes. and how you can, how you can, how you do that? Um, I'm sure I didn't get everything right with that because I really was learning as I went along. But, um, but, um, but it was a real privilege to do it, and some of those young people were incredible. Um, and then I went, I actually then swapped sides and went to work for a funder, um, and that was also interesting. So
0: what's a funder?
1: So. Um, Organisations that give money to charities. I see.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. So it was something called at the time called the Private Equity Foundation. Okay. So I was going to say
0: like a a foundation.
1: Exactly. Um, Which
0: which kind of takes philanthropists' money, or do they? They they essentially get philanthropists involved in the charities that they want to be involved in. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Um, And they wanted to. They had a specific focus on young people. So I was sort of there as the charity board. With the young people's experience. Sure, yeah. yeah. But I had this insight into the world of private equity and business that was um, quite a a shock to the system, yeah. Yeah. But it made me raise my game in lots of places. It was a really good experience in lots of ways.
0: Did you have to change the way that you communicate? Did you have to put on maybe a slightly different face?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think,
0: you know, because you're going from a kind of campaigning, everybody's cheering uh, sort of sort of vibe. Then you're in a room with people, probably a lot of white men in suits.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> do yes. you, what do you do to change the, to change that, that your sort of the way you present yourself?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Head teachers will talk about code switching to, to kids in terms of, you know, using your, um, the language you use with your friends may not be the language you use with teachers or an employer or yeah. what have you and code switching definitely applies in this situation right, although yeah. frankly it's the lingo as well i remember sitting in the first board meeting which was an entirely male board i think a lot of americans very business school-y like they'd all pretty yeah. much been to harvard business school like you know that yeah, sort yeah. of background i i had no idea what half of them were talking about i really, really didn't know what they were saying yeah. um but I've absorbed it now. So some my team laugh at me now because I bring up some of the, the lingo and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh God. <laughs> but you, you know, you have to work out. It, it was feels like-
0: kind of impenetra- impenetrable sometimes though, yeah. isn't it? When, when there's that, that there's a definite, um, style and a definite, um, de- definite Lexus. And yeah. you are slightly on the outside of that. Um, Is that, did you find that, uh, challenging to, to break through to?
1: Yeah. It was a very steep learning curve, and I fit, I also felt a responsibility to sort of be that translator for the on the charity side right. as well, and sort of because I do think we can talk across purposes yeah. a lot, but I also think there's quite often, not always, but quite often this sort of approach from business side: we know what we're doing, and bless you, charities will come and and give you our right. our sort of um, efficiency and business structure. So you so don't you necessarily be have to bow
0: to their way way of talking that you. Sometimes you could you can just be confident in your own ability to communicate the 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 correct the right points and the right thing to do.
1: Well, I think we should be as charities, but I think too often the approach from businesses that they don't necessarily understand quite how hard it is to run a charity, yeah. how complicated in lots of ways is more complicated than running a business. And um, um yeah, and I think because we're sort of you know, we're not paid that well, we're not big brands, we're doing hard frontline, often unglamorous work, that's seen as, oh, well, you know, that's sort of, um you know, it's just a nice to have on the side, you know, you're very amateur. But actually what You know, it's also part of my bugbear about soft skills, because actually soft skills are the hardest to learn and the most important to get right. Yeah. Um,
0: You hear that a lot. I mean, I heard that the other day, hard skills, soft skills. I mean, what what do people mean by that?
1: So hard skills, are, I guess, are numbers and analysis and, you know, business type things. And soft skills are how you um, how you engage with people, how you Um, support them how you look after them um that's that's
0: 100% the most difficult I mean in my job as a filmmaker for example right hard skills then would be how the camera works how the how all the what what plugs into where you know where to put the light yeah the soft skills would be how to make the person you're interviewing you're filming feel comfortable get the content out of them that you need to make the the film that you're making and you know um make sure that actually the other people in the crew are all have all you know got a common goal in in doing the right thing yeah yeah and that yeah. is the that's the hardest bit yeah. yeah definitely people always you know uh the director is always at the top of the tree and the director always gets paid the most but that's because that's they're taking the responsibility of the soft skills yeah. um so yeah you're right they are the most important yeah and uh People do forget that, don't they? Yeah. And it comes naturally to some people and and definitely not to others. Yeah. And I think when it doesn't come naturally to, to, to those people, uh, p- other people aren't inclined to help them because it's not a kind of instinctive thing to do, is it?
1: Well, but you can learn it. You can get better at it. Practice is definitely important. And I think valuing it is the first step and recognising how complicated it is and helping people on that journey. But you've got to put it at the heart of what you're doing rather than going, well, that's just over there. Yeah. Um, Which, unfortunately, I think is um, quite a scene, quite, you know, that is the way things work in a lot of society, in a lot of organisations, which is a real shame.
0: Mm. Communication, you know, it's the most important, really, isn't it? Yeah. Because whether you just want to communicate the way that you're feeling to somebody else... Or you want to communicate that you're trying to do this humongous charity effort to somebody with a lot of money, whatever it is, like, if you can't get that piece of information across and make somebody else understand it uh, empathetically, then, you know, we're lost, are not we? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think there's a, there's a Maya, I think it's a Maya Angelou quote about, um, which is people, people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they won't forget how you made them feel.
0: Okay, so we sidetracked a bit, but you, we went. You were at I was the at funder. A funder, and then,
1: um, sorry, <laughs> I'm nearly there. That's all um, right. <laughs> um, the funder decided to bring over from the US a big. A charity called City Year, Mm -hmm. which deploys young people to be volunteers in schools for a year, a bit like a gap year. So the young people are 18 to 25. They put a million pounds into making that happen. And I was initially seconded for six months to get it going. And I stayed for eight years running it and growing it. So that was where I really cut my teeth in terms of, you know, I was the chief exec of a charity at yeah. 32, learning on the job, starting it up, growing it. Um, but what a, I mean, a huge, huge privilege.
0: Do so you also feel responsibility? Oh, my
1: God, yes. I mean, it's really stressful. <laughs> um, and that, that continual sort of anxiety that you have about where's the money coming from and... Um, you know, there's a, a all sorts of safeguarding, health and safety. You know, you're responsible for the whole blooming shebang. People like are something looking could, to you. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's quite a step change. Um, but you know, you get used to that. I think the thing that I people had said to me, but that I hadn't that you sometimes you've got to experience things is how lonely it is being a chief exec, like because you've got your management team your sort of senior team around you but none of them has that helicopter view that you've got of the whole thing and none of them has that responsibility and then you've got a board um, who you can call on for help but you're also accountable to them so you have to present to them what you're doing and right. show them that
0: you're and competent so there's like a level and it's just you at that you're level you're sandwiched
1: in between and, the two right um, and that took quite a lot of getting used to um, but But it was also amazing. So I learned a huge amount during that period.
0: Yeah, I Um, bet. So you said four years? Eight years. Oh, eight years. Wow, a long time. Yeah, so you must have done something right.
1: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, But then, and I had my first daughter during that time. And then I I then lost a baby um, at 20 weeks, which was pretty grim. And at that point... That was sort of in my eighth year and at that point, for lots of reasons, but that was one of them, decided that life is too short. I needed to step away sure. Um, and then managed to thankfully get pregnant with my now second daughter. And I was off for a while. I just needed to decompress and I also get quite ill when I'm pregnant. So I just needed to lie in a darkened room for a lot of the pregnancy. Right. But it was during that period that Sophia, who founded Little Village, approached me and said, would you consider applying to be a trustee okay um and so I've known her and her um then partner for quite a long time so sort of seen little village evolving and being like oh my god this looks amazing so I was really excited to be asked to apply for the board applied for the board and then she said so we need a chair so um so I then became the chair just as I was about to have my second daughter yeah um and was doing that um through to through COVID the beginning of COVID when we had to completely change the the little village model um and then in 2020 Sophia said I need to step down um or I want to step down from little village and my gut reaction was I would just love to do your job oh really so being chair is fine but I you know my lesson is I'm a hands-on person so you know that was the bit I was itching to be involved with. She was it wasn't because she wasn't doing a good job. She was doing an amazing job, and it was big shoes to step into. But if she was going to step out of it, I was like, oh, I would just love this. So then I had to step down from the board, apply along with a hundred other people that applied, and be put through interviews, and it, that was high stakes because it could have been, you know. Um, not me that was selected, yeah. and that would have been the end of my journey with Little Village. But I think sometimes you've just got to take a risk. Yeah. And do um, you had a feeling. Well, I just I suppose I thought I either want to be doing this properly or not doing it at all, because I don't want to be the chair line managing the person doing a job that I want to do. Yeah. That would just be wrong, actually not fair on that person either. Yeah. So it's better to, you know, sometimes in life you've just got to take some risks. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Thankfully, I got the job and I've been doing it since February 2021.
0: I wanted to ask you, if you didn't mind, um, about being, you said you've got two daughters. Yeah. About being a working mum. And I'm I'm aware of that question. And I I don't want to, I'm aware it can like define the kind of, success of 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 successful women yeah you know because they always get asked it yeah but I I suppose it's still relevant it is still relevant you know um because um you have you have the children you had the children Mm -hmm. and um then you have to go back to work you know um what's it what is it like you know with having two young children and being having quite a having an important job that you really care about.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, it is really relevant, but I would also say you should ask dads who come on your podcast the same question because I don't think men get asked it at all and they should be asked it and they should be asked to think about it.
0: I will do. And not just because you said it, because my mum, who who listens to every single second of my podcast... um, As she should. She said the same thing. Yeah. And actually I didn't... uh, She said I should have asked... Jack who was on the last podcast um and she's right i i, w- I will do yeah. um for sure because i don't
1: think people do ask my husband they don't say well, it's like, what it's no. what is it like being a working dad what what do you do mm. um and i think that's you know and we we happen to be talking on international women's day so you know i suppose it's also that sort of yeah if we're going to get to equality Men have to be recognised as equally responsible as parents. I also think there's something about men sort of get sidelined and it's, you know, and you get it with, I don't know, the phone calls from school or when you go to the doctor. It's like they want to talk to mum, not dad. And it's like, why, why, why should you be talking to me? If dads routinely get called, if they routinely get emailed, if if professionals think about them then that would change the balance and it's subtle but it's quite big it ca- could be cumulatively really quite big yeah um so anyway sorry I slightly digressed from no, the I... impact because it obviously it has a, has an impact and it has an impact on women because we have to have the baby so yeah. Yeah. um
0: uh that's why I was yeah. honestly I, I did wonder about whether to ask you because I I do think that it's like it it is on one hand like yeah great empowering women you have a kid but you can also have a great job. You know, but on the other hand, it, it's always like it's always part of the narrative of the success yeah. of a successful woman, isn't it? Yeah, who's 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 had kids.
1: Yeah,
0: and and it, it like you said, it's never part of the narrative of the successful man. Yeah, um, and and I, you know, I don't know,
1: but you see, I think it's not about cutting out that conversation with women because I think otherwise sure. you're hiding that we have yeah. children and families and we should be more yeah. Um, open about this is about life and life is messy and has children yeah, in it yeah, and yeah. we should celebrate that. It's about Asking that, having that discussion with men as well, rather yeah. than it just being a discussion with women. Yeah. We should all be talking about it because actually, what is the point of life if it's not to have a family and be happy and to be balancing it in all its messiness? Yeah, 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 um, totally. It's that. It's r- rather than just being like, I am a career. I have my career in a box and I can't possibly talk about anything else that I do because actually yeah. everything else in my life impacts.
0: Feeds into it, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. Definitely. And the
1: experience mm-hmm. I have as a parent, feeds into how i feel about my work and the experience i bring to my work.
0: Yeah. Um it's all part of who you are as exactly, a pastor, isn't it? Yeah, for yeah. sure.
1: Um so yeah, i mean having them has been both amazing and really hard. Um and um and obviously losing a baby in the middle was really hard as well. Yeah. So um yeah. yeah. I found maternity leave really difficult. I found it difficult in terms of the people, the other mums that I was hanging out, out with on maternity leave were all delighted to be on maternity leave, off for a year, didn't understand why I found it hard to be away from work. Um, so that was that was tricky. And I honestly thought my head was going to explode. I was so used to the intellectual stimulation of work that coming off that um, I just found really difficult. Um, and it was the identity shift. It was suddenly not, you know, I was, it was like, who, who am I? I, you know, I think when you've been a professional, I had, um, my oldest when I was 37, so I'd worked for a long time. That was quite a change. And I I found that adjustment really difficult. She was born at Christmas. So I was also off in this sort of gray, (laughs) cold weather, which doesn't help. Um, so all of that I found, yeah, I found that really hard. With with Clara my second, it was easier, but you know the thing that made it much easier is that my p- husband managed to get shared parental leave and he was off at the same time as me for the first I think it was the first 12 weeks. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Oh my goodness, how transformational. Yeah. Um, you know, you could fully share the nights. Obviously, we had a second, uh, our older daughter as well. So we were managing that, but it was just totally different. Um, and again, it's just that, you know, that contrast of the isolation and the loneliness and not having a clue what I was doing and all of that stuff with the first to... Second time round, you sort of know what you're doing a little bit more, but also having someone there to to share that burden was just—I was like, this is this is how it should be.
0: Yeah, I know. I totally agree. Um, we so we, we when I, I I I'm freelance, so I was kind of there quite a bit anyway. Yeah. Um, uh And then we decided to go. We bought a van and drove around. Europe for two months Oh wow! <laughs> because I was like well you know we we need that time together yeah actually and I'm not I, I wouldn't be very good at just um sitting in our flat I, I would get quite bored and we wanted we had been planning to do a trip anyway uh and then Sophie got pregnant and obviously it got pushed back or whatever so I was like come on let's just do it um, and I don't really think that Soph believed or, or, or 100% believed we were going to do it until I actually bought the van, <laughs> uh, which she found, to be fair. Um, and then we got it now. And I was like, right, let's let's do it. Let's book our boat, you know, to Bilbao or whatever. Santander, I think it was. And then we just did this thing. And, and actually my friend, you know, he um, they didn't have a lot of money at the time and they decided they would just sublet their flat they moved to Pembrokeshire um, and lived in a yurt for, I think, four months. Oh, my
1: goodness.
0: I think when you say that to people, people, it's like, what? That's mental. And it's like, why is that mental? You know, that's <laughs> that's a perfect. And it didn't, it's not like they had a massive nest egg. You know, they, yeah. just, they just said, okay, we can make this work because it's important for us to have this time. And I think if the... Um, the kind of collective consciousness that the, the, the if, if we all believed that something like that was important, paternity leave would be longer. You know, yeah. my poor brother, yeah. he's just had, two, he had two weeks, you know.
1: Yeah. And then that's it. Two weeks.
0: Back to normal. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and he's a teacher, so he gets kind of a few holidays or whatever. Um, uh, he needs to work. Yeah um but 2 weeks is nothing is. 2 weeks is just a, a like a holiday in, a, a, in Spain or something isn't it you know you need yeah. like you need that whole quality time because you're in that especially those first month few months there's so many ups and downs yeah and exactly. emotionally physically like and the
1: sleep and all of the that sleep stuff and is like just, the, the, oh.
0: you know they'll cough and you'll be like what what's wrong mate you know, <laughs> yes.
1: when <weren't> they yeah <laughs> yes. and
0: it's and and you you don't know and and, and there's you know, the worry, the worry, I never, ever experienced worrying like that before. Um, cause I'm not a worrier really. And then suddenly it's like my, you know, she's coughing or something, or, or she's got a bruise or whatever. And I'm like, um, you, you know, did I put her nubby on too hard or something? Yeah, you know, yeah. and there's nothing... uh, the worry is yeah. like, the levels are just up here. Yeah. And when there's two of you and you're in a kind of safe nest, a safe space. Um, you, you are, you become a team, don't you? And it's much, much easier and it's much nicer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And why should it, why should it be a tough experience? Why shouldn't it be pleasant? Actually, why shouldn't it be easier? Um, and again, I come back to what society values. Um, and that you know it's all about no we've got to go back and be economically productive well actually what about being societally happy and what does a good life look like how are we valuing that what does that mean
0: you've given us a really nice um linear story of of your progression i wonder how you've changed as a person from your kind of early days with the kind of politics and the comms how have you changed
1: I think, I mean, there's lots of sort of stuff around. I'm a bit longer in the tooth, so stuff that ha- happens at Little Village freaks me out less than when I was at City Year you know, when it was the first time some of this stuff was happening. So that's sort of good in that you know having been around the block a bit helps. What kind
0: of stuff? Oh, people um, dropping their funding.
1: Yeah, that sort of. Yeah, just the roller coaster of life running a charity, really. Right. You know, and every day there's like a new new saga <laughs> be that you know because we employ a lot of people now or because we've got properties or because you know it's just constantly there's always something right. that's thrown up so you can't like plan a week and think right that will be my week because stuff will happen so I think it's sort of just rolling with that roller coaster
0: being more flexible and yeah and not and freaking just out,
1: not freaking out like, oh my you know so yeah. although I like to be in control there's a sort of also a bit of letting go of around, this will be okay, we can deal with it, take a deep breath, we can manage it, sort of thing that has come with a bit of experience. But equally, I think the older I get, the less I feel I know and... Um, but I think also the older I get, the more angry I get, like I'm getting more radical. I know the general trend is that you get more conservative as you get older. I just feel like the more I see of the world and the world around me, the more angry I get at injustice and the more I want to change things and the more I want to, um, you know, have a, have an impact on that in the small way that I can. But I suppose, actually, I think my ego might have shrunk a bit around, I can have a small impact in the general scheme of things mm-hmm. you know we can all just take chip away at that wall a little bit piece by piece and I'm doing my bit to chip away but it is a bit and and I think I guess the perspective you get with with time yeah. is that you know you only you have your time um, on this earth to do your, your bit
0: yeah and you do what you can
1: yeah <laughs>
0: yeah. Um I'm going to paraphrase my, my mum talking about Mother Teresa now. Um so it might not be tr- this might not be 100% accurate. But um so mu- much of what you do is fundraising, right? Yeah. You like you said big challenge, you need money. You go to people who've got the money and you get them yeah. to give it to you. Yeah.
1: And that, sadly, that's never going to change. We can't run a run it like a, a business where there's no sort of traded income that I can see at the moment that would work with our model. So we're going to always have to fundraise.
0: Right. So as I said, um, this, is, this is what my mum told me. So okay. I'm blaming her if it's wrong. Uh, Mother Teresa always said she didn't mind where the money came from as long as she could use it to help people is there anyone's help or money you wouldn't accept?
1: Yeah, that is a Mother Teresa phrase because actually I had a former boss who used to say that as well. Um, And But yeah, there is money we wouldn't accept. Like we wouldn't accept Sackler money, you know, the opioids crisis um, or arms dealer money or tobacco money. You know, there are some things where, you know, you draw a line. Um, But on on the whole, actually, I think... um, so yes, there are. There definitely is. That's the short answer. Yeah. But I think um, I definitely feel like there's a, a bit of a mission as a charity to work with people who want to give their money, but to help them on that journey to connect with um, communities and situations they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to, mm-hmm. be that businesses or individuals. And I think if people are willing to engage properly and do it for the right reasons, you can go on quite a journey with them. And that's... You know, that's an important part of fundraising and philanthropy. And um, um I think, you know, actually that can be a really powerful process.
0: Yeah.
1: Doesn't always work. Some people just want to give for other reasons. Yeah. Sometimes you can you can be sort of pragmatic about that and be like, Yeah, but this money's helping us to do
0: something. So we will Right. Again, take so it's, it's like the stuff to the people that need it, but actually trying to find out a bit more about the situation. So hopefully we can make a bit of a change in our society. The money, yes, you need it, but it's kind of a conduit for um, finding out about those people that have the money and talking to them and and building a relationship with them as well.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's respectful. If someone's prepared to give you a lot of money, to say... You know, obviously you should thank them, but to get to know them, to understand their motivation, to understand why they're giving and what they would like to see as part or how they want to be involved is is a respectful thing to do and an important relationship. And it's also, I think, part of our philosophy of, you know, we're trying to build a community. And ultimately, I would love us to have, and we've got to have the infrastructure for it, but lots of low level, you know, £30 a month type gifts. So people people whose children have grown up or who don't have the stuff to give um, can give in another way. Yeah. And that's the, you know, we're building the village in a different way, but there'll always be a need for people who can make a bigger contribution. Um, and that's great because <laughs> we definitely need it.
0: But what do you find most rewarding about what you do?
1: Oh, it's definitely the the impact stuff, like hearing, hearing what's happened, um, is definitely the most rewarding. You know, that's why why all of us at Little Village get out of bed every morning. And yes, I'm more removed from it day to day because I'm thinking about property and fundraising and what have you, rather than being on the ground with families. But when you hear those stories and you get the quotes through, it's like, yeah, okay, we're doing the right thing. Um, we've just been doing our impact report for last year. So I've been getting that in spades recently and it's been lovely. Oh, okay. Yeah, actually this works. It's having an impact. People really value it. Um, and we've, we've managed to ramp it up and it's, and it's having an impact, not just on the families, but also the volunteers. So we've had feedback from volunteers saying, um, you know, this has helped me. I know I'm here to help other people, but it's also helped me at the same time. And that's amazing and
0: lovely. So we come to our final section, do a bit of work for us on the good job podcast. Uh, what are you going to do for us?
1: I'm going to tell you or I'm just going to I'm going to channel our families and read you some some quotes from them, um, which actually I'll be doing in a few weeks when we launch our impact report for 2022 um, to our funders and our volunteers. We're doing a special report back to them, which is really important um, and to our staff. So I'll do that if that's OK. Please
0: do.
1: Um, so, yeah, this is a quote from an interview that we did um At the start of this year, the family we um, supported, who's talking about their experience coming into one of Little Village's um, hubs to select items. Um, And the person says, they didn't treat me like I was some random person. They didn't treat me like crap. They just treated me like I'm a parent and they know what the struggles are like. And then another one is what I like about them is as well is that sometimes they give you little surprises like a little perfume or things for yourself because normally it's for the kids but you don't think they will also give something for you which is really, really nice as well. I know little things, it means a lot. Even though you're not asking for yourself it makes you feel that you're also valued as a person that it's not just only for the kids.
0: Sophie Livingston, thank you so much for coming on the Good Job podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: so there we go Sophie Livingston thanks again so much to Pacific 7 Productions for putting us up if you want to know more about the work that Little Village do I'll put links in the description or you can just go to littlevillage.org to find out more and there's also a very nice brand film on there that was obviously made by someone very talented wonder how that could be anyway look back soon with some more fascinating guests but until then keep up the good work